The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning and ministers of the word have handed them down to us, I too have decided, after investigating everything accurately anew, to write it down in an orderly sequence for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may realize the certainty of the teachings you have received. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news of him spread through the whole region. He taught in their synagogues and was praised by all. He came to Nazareth, where he had grown up, and went, according to his custom, into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read and was handed a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the passage where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord. Rolling up the scroll, he handed it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue looked intently at him. He said to them, Today, this scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing. The Gospel of the Lord. I hope you noticed in that first reading from Nehemiah the liturgical structure of the gathering there. They found this scroll and the attendant read from it from morning till midday. That's a big chunk of time just to read. And after that it was interpreted. So who knows how many hours they were in the temple that day. Probably quite a few. But I know people like yourselves who venture out in this kind of a weather to be at church are not conscious of time. So we can go long here. You'll be out by midday. You know, each of the gospel writers 
launches Jesus' public career, his ministry, with some kind of a spectacular moment, some event that catches people off guard by what he says or does, and it at the same time gives them a glimpse into his identity and also invites them to be a part of his mission. And as part of it, they learn who Jesus is and what his ultimate purpose is about. You remember last week, we heard from John's Gospel, and the career of Jesus began in an untimely way. He didn't think it was his time, but his mother did. He began his career at a wedding, the wedding of Cana. And that was the first sign John calls, a sign that begins to reveal who Jesus is with these symbols of wine, empty jars. Because in the Old Testament, wine was a symbol of the day when the Messiah would finally arrive and there would be an abundance of wine to inebriate the people on the glory of God. Now today we're hearing from Luke's gospel. And Luke inaugurates Jesus' ministry at a liturgical event. It's the Sabbath day. It's in the synagogue, and he's in his hometown of Nazareth. So we would assume that the people there in the assembly, at least most of them, knew him. Some of them maybe babysat for him. Some of those people were his peers he grew up with, guys he hung out with, played games with, wrestled with, who knows. But at one point in this service, he assumes a very public liturgical role. When he takes this scroll, he unrolls it where he wants to read from, the prophet Isaiah, and we heard this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives, sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to declare a year acceptable to the Lord. The key word there is anointed. The speaker of that text refers to himself as the long-awaited Messiah, and to the astonishment of Jesus' assembly, Jesus is now claiming that. He's claiming to be the one that was sent to do these things to bring glad tidings, to liberate the captives, to give sight to the blind. And if we were to continue reading on in Luke's gospel, where moments after that proclamation, it says people were just amazed, they are astonished. Some were very, very delighted because this was their hometown boy. He made good. But others were not so happy. They started to doubt, and maybe it was just too close for comfort. They knew too much about him. How could somebody like that be the one that we have been waiting for all of these centuries? So there's a mixed reaction to Jesus, and that's from the very start of the gospel, and it will be to our very own day. Some will accept him, Some will not. But this whole public career that Jesus begins 
from that day on. Doesn't emerge out of a vacuum, you know, just as he had 30 years prior to these three. So during those years, what we call the hidden years of Jesus, something must have happened to shape him to the Messiah or to that role that he's going to assume. Those hidden years were formative years. And maybe we've all heard the expression, we are what we were when. We are what we were when. Basically, we're the product today of what happened in our past. So Jesus, like all of us, was shaped by circumstances in those hidden years. And while the Gospels don't give us real concrete details of what those were, I think we can speculate what some of those influences may have been, given what we know happened in those three years of Jesus' public service. For example, the idea of a nuclear family, like we know today, with mother, father, and immediate children, that did not exist in the time of Jesus. In Jesus' day, the family consisted of, yeah, mom and dad, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, distant relatives, if grandparents lived long enough, which they probably did not in most cases. So it was all of those people. And when we hear about Jesus' brothers and sisters elsewhere in the Gospels, it included all of those cousins. And apparently in this extended family that Jesus belonged to, he was not some solitary dreamer, some kind of a loner, but he hung out with lots of people, friends, relatives, because they all seemed to know him when he came to the synagogue that day. And we can't assume everyone had happy memories of Jesus that day when he shows up in the synagogue. He may have been very popular with some, I suspect with especially the the marginalized kids, the ones nobody would play with, but maybe not so popular with the bullies, the ones who made fun of the outsiders, the not-so-popular kids. What else do we know? Well, we're told he was a carpenter, son of a carpenter. And in the Greek, carpenter really referred to someone who was a builder. It wasn't just somebody who had a woodworking shop. It was someone who could have built homes, stores, synagogues. It was somebody who could have traveled. So it's very possible that he and Joseph were on the move, wherever there was work. So it took them around, and it got Jesus out of that small little town of Nazareth, perhaps where he encountered other types of people, like the poor, or the people he noticed who felt so very crushed and oppressed by the oppression of the Roman government. And maybe it was during those years of travel that he first encountered blind people and deaf people, mute people. Disabled people who had lost all hope of ever having a life 
that was quality. And he surely would have, if not seen, heard of the lepers. They were the most ostracized. They were rejected and shunned even by their families and religious communities. And maybe during those 30 years of growing up, he observed things like family squabbles, where the youngest son wanted to go sow his oats, ask for what he had coming to him, and go off and squander it. Maybe that's what gave him the material for the parable of the prodigal son. He may also have heard of those notorious bandits from Jericho. Maybe he even met one. Maybe he was mugged by one so that he could tell the story of the Good Samaritan with great passion and credibility. And if we look at some of Jesus' other parables, we can discern that he had a very keen observation for the natural world that was around him. Because, remember, he spoke of the lilies of the field that neither toiled nor spin, spun, but they, they were arrayed like a king. He noticed the birds of the air. He paid attention to agricultural customs and practices so that he could talk about fig trees, mustard seeds, how to sow wheat. He must have also observed patterns in the natural world, how everything could be peaceful one moment, and then with very little warning, a terrible storm, violent wind and water suddenly emerged. He also must have known a lot about fishing because he chose a lot of fishermen to be his closest disciples. And maybe he even had a hand in the kitchen with Mary from time to time because he knew how to bake bread. He knew how wheat had to be ground and dough needed to be kneaded and yeast necessary for it to rise. And we also know from the Gospels that from time to time, Jesus would withdraw, set himself apart to be alone in prayer with his father. He must have learned that in his early years as well. Maybe watching Mary, who Luke tells us pondered things over and over in her heart. Maybe he watched Joseph in prayer. And so he got in the custom of taking time to be by himself, to mull over all the things he was observing in life and try to find the hand of God in those events and in people's lives. But without doubt, we can see in the Gospels, he loved humanity. Jesus, whom we believe is God made flesh in our midst, the divine word, but also very very human. Someone who loved his flesh, loved his body, and saw that this body he was given was a revelation of God and was the instrument that God would use to save the world. Those are just a smattering 
of aspects that we can presume or think about from Jesus' early years, given what we know about the later years. And we might ask, well, so what? Why bother? Why bother looking at those? Well, I think one reason is that it demonstrates that Jesus, like all of us, was shaped by his environment and by the people around him. All of that is formative of who we are. And it's a powerful reminder to parents in their noble vocation that they have of making sure their children are exposed to those realities that are most engendering and enriching for their lives. But this also reminds us that we too have a past. A past with good things and bad things. And all of those have come together to make us who we are today or who we don't want to be today. And it reminds me and perhaps any of you old enough to remember the Baltimore Catechism, of what we learned when we were asked the question, why did God make me? The Catechism said, God made us to know, to love, and to serve him in this world, and to be happy with him in the next. And we might add, to know, love, and serve one another in this world and in the next. So as we look at how our lives have unfolded in their hidden aspects and in their public manifestations, we see that the grace of God was there permeating those, bringing grace out of darkness, light where it was needed. Now we can strive to continue to do those very things, to know, love, and serve God in this world, to know, love, and serve one another in this world, so that we can all be happy with him in the next.